Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. In 1968, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, warned that the number of people on Earth was spiraling out of control. We were worried then about the problems of feeding human society when there was three and a half billion people on the planet. Now we've got way over seven billion people. The problem today isn't that there's not enough to go around, says Ehrlich. The problem is that it's not going around to everyone. Many people, like us, consume too much, and then there's several billion who don't get to consume enough. And that's one of the huge problems that's not normally discussed in those terms. The Population Bomb, up next on Climate One. Sponsorship for the Climate One podcast comes in part from Villanova University. Passionate about sustainability? Villanova University offers graduate degrees in sustainable engineering. The master's and the Ph.D. can be completed as a full-time or part-time student, online or on campus, and are available for engineers and non-engineers alike. Villanova's interdisciplinary program explores the full environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainable engineering. VUSustainableEngineering.com The world's population is on the rise. How much is too much? Welcome to Climate One. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Paul and Anne Ehrlich's seminal bestseller, The Population Bomb. In the year 35, 35, ain't gonna need to tell the truth. The book warned of the dangers of overpopulation, including mass starvation, societal upheaval, and environmental ruin. While not all of the Ehrlich's dire predictions have come to pass, the world's population has more than doubled since then, straining the planet's resources and heating up our climate. Paul Ehrlich is now a professor of population studies at Stanford University. On today's program, Greg Dalton talks with Ehrlich about how we're coping with our ever more crowded world and what we could be doing better. You had a impactful, traumatic ride in a taxi in Delhi that was somewhat of the inspiration for the riding the population bomb. What Tell us about that taxi well, ride. Well, we wanted something dramatic to start the book, and Anne and I uh, had, I can't remember where we were going, but it was back uh, to the hotel uh, when I was doing field work in India. And we got into a taxi that had one functioning gear uh, and the seats jumping with lice uh, and went through streets where people were living in the streets, as you can still find them in many parts of the world, um, cooking over little open fires, uh, relieving themselves in the streets. And it was a jam. And so we described that. Uh, it was probably a mistake because people said, ah, oh, you're just racists. Well, of course, to a biologist who's worked in genetics and evolution, the whole idea of racial differences that are important uh, is just nonsense. But even more so, of course, the Indians, under the classic definitions of race, that the ones that are wrong are the same race as we are. Uh, so, but that's quite typical. When you get out in the public, you got to be ready to have people totally misinterpret what you do. If we wrote the book again, I'd probably uh, describe some some real hellhole like Miami uh, for uh, illustrating what's wrong with the world. And you wrote it with your wife, Anne, but the publisher insisted on a single author. Tell us why and, and do you regret well, that? 
Ian Ballantyne, who was then the inventor of pocketbooks, and Dave Brower, who everybody in the Bay Area knows was one of the great original environmentalists, came to me and said, look, uh, if you and Ann can write this down quickly, uh, we'll publish it. This was in early, uh, we've been 68. Um, We'll publish it and maybe we can influence the election, which shows, of course, how naive they were, just like me. But then when the book was finished, they said, look, for publicity purposes, for getting it around, for getting the word out, it should only have one author. And I'm ashamed to admit that I folded on it and said, go ahead, don't worry about it. And uh, I still worry about it because uh, it was a good example of male chauvinism back in those days, which I collaborated with. Um, As uh, you may know, my latest book has a senior author who's a woman, and Anne has had her name on many books that she's written or done all the brain work on. So uh, it was a big mistake, but I made it. Some people uh, criticize the book for applying an insect model to to humans who are are conscious beings. Is that fair to think that you... It's not fair at all because, of course, the mathematics is the same. Insects are people, basically. Uh, Insects are very important to us. They are our major competitors for food. But the basic uh, facts given have not in any way been disputed by the scientific community. Last year, a paper was published uh, by a guy named Bill Ripple and over 15,000 co-authors backing exactly what I've been saying for a long time. It's the second notice in 1993, about 1,500 scientists signed a thing called the World Scientists Warning to Humanity, saying, among other things, if we don't do something about population growth, we're out of luck. And the same year, all the academies of science in the world basically said the same thing. I've had nothing but support from the scientific community, which has been a real pleasure, I must say. One of the critiques of the book is often that it's it's overly dark, it's doomsday, and what, what do you say that today? It's much darker today, and you can prove it. In other words, there's no, after all, we were worried then about the problems of feeding human society when there was three and a half billion people on the planet. Since then, something on the order of 200 to 500 million people have starved to death or died of um, nutrition-related illness. Now we've got way over 7 billion people. We have something on the order of 800 million. That's more than double the population of the United States hungry and starving, and another billion or two who are micronutrient malnourished. And people always say, wow, we don't have any food problem. Well, the people saying that, of course, usually don't. Uh, I don't have a food problem. Uh, I wish I had a little bit more of a food problem. But if you've ever traveled in poor countries, you can't miss the undernourished kids. Uh, And the fact that people are micronutrient malnourished means they can't function well in society. So when we try and get society to take action, on our existential problems, uh, we have trouble doing it. Some organizations, Oxfam included, say that the world produces enough calories. It's a matter of distribution, getting them to the right place. Is that is that your view? At the moment, that's probably true. That is, uh, if we did everything right and distributed things fairly, uh, then everybody could have a decent diet. Of course, what do we distribute fairly? Uh, in, in places where there's a lot of hunger, the food isn't distributed fairly because the father has to get more than the kids or everybody starves. Uh, the, if you look at the problems of humanity, and that's one of the reasons that uh, I and my colleagues have put too much time into it, equity is a huge issue. Money isn't distributed fairly in the United States or anywhere else. Uh, human beings don't distribute stuff fairly. So one of our challenges is to find a government that will arrange things so that uh, even the people who are at the short end of the stick get more than enough to have a decent life. We don't do that even in the United States. So you're talking is, about wealth distribution, redistribution? Well, I, I, If you use the term redistribution, of course, you get into trouble. I use it all the time to get into trouble because the economists think that growth is the only thing that counts and efficiency is the only thing that counts, whereas... I know, as every scientist knows, perpetual growth is the creed of the cancer cell. Uh, it can't occur. Uh, and that equity uh, is it's going to require redistribution. You cannot get 
say, 8 billion people, which is where we're going to be very soon, all living uh, like the Koch brothers. It just can't be done. So we obviously need redistribution. Or 8 billion people even look living like you and me. That oh, yeah. Would be oh, yeah. No, by the, by the way, when I say rich versus poor, which I may sometime in the program, I'm counting us in the rich. Uh, and uh, the problem of overconsumption, of course, is the other side of the coin. In other words, the, the big problem for our life support systems is the aggregate consumption, the stuff that we extract from nature to use. And that's clearly the product of the number of people and the average per capita consumption. Saying it's only consumption is like saying, well, the area of a rectangle is only the width. It turns out when you multiply two things together, they both are equally important. And in this case, population and per capita consumption are what really important. And one of the huge things is many people like us consume too much. And then there's a several billion who don't get to consume enough. And that's one of the huge problems that's not normally discussed in those terms. Some people talk about voluntary restraint or virtuous restraint, you know, consuming less, not buying things on impulse, driving smaller cars, smaller houses. Do you think that kind of virtuous restraint is going to make a meaningful difference that humans will really do that? It may make a little difference, but um, it's not going to make a lot. We need joint social action. Uh, for example, uh, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of things, uh, people, when I was involved in one environmental organization, they were crazy about recycling. And recycling can be good. It can be bad also. It depends on where you are and what you're recycling. But the claim would be made if we push recycling, uh, then people will get more involved in the environment. And I would say true. It's also true that they could wheel their recycling bins past the three Humvees in the garage to the, to the curb and feel that they're being very environmentally sound. And the answer is we need huge changes. To give you an example from the demographic side, from population, um, having one less child is the equivalent, if you have one less child, of you giving up driving entirely 20 times. In other words, giving up driving only saves the environment in the climate area. This is in climate, a paper by Wynne et al., uh, that if you give up having a child, you save uh, 20 times as much Greenhouse gas not going into the atmosphere as you would if you gave up driving entirely. For your whole life? For your whole life. How, so let's talk about climate. How has climate affected your projections looking into the future? Because you were pretty dark in 1968, and you say you're, it's darker now. How has climate figured well, into in that? Well, in 1968, we did discuss in the population bomb the fact that it's crystal clear to anybody who's thought about it. If you put crap into the atmosphere, you're going to change the climate. There was a lot of debate back then about whether it was going to be largely cooling or largely um, heating, which was coming. That's because in 1968, um, various people hadn't done the research to show that carbon dioxide, uh, the main greenhouse gas, was accompanied by another bunch of gases that almost accounted for another half of the warming, and that's what shifted things in the direction of warming. Uh, sadly, of course, then we thought that climate was going to be a big problem maybe around 2100. Of course, it's a big problem today, uh, and it's getting worse and worse. And again, uh, the morons in Washington are pulling out of the inadequate climate arrangement that went on in Paris. Um, this is the trouble with having people who are totally ignorant and greedy running a country, and that's our cacistocracy. And other countries are almost as bad, but the U.S. is the most powerful nation in the world, and it is winning its war on the environment with the present administration. You say impacts today. How is uh, climate affecting food production? You know, it's often thought of as a future concern. How is it a media concern? Well, <clears throat> a lot of the emphasis given in the mass media is on sea level rise. Even here at Stanford campus in Palo Alto, California, uh, we'll be able to outwalk sea level rise. Uh, it's a relatively gradual process unless we're extraordinarily unlucky with the dynamics of the glaciers in Antarctica. My guess is we won't be. Uh, what we know for sure is places like Miami are going bye-bye in the relatively near future, going right now. In other words, they, they can't keep the water out coming up through the uh, rocks. Sunny day flooding. Yeah, right. right. Uh, but much more critical 
is the impact of climate disruption on agricultural systems. We're already seeing we were doing very well increasing the yields on basic crops. Humanity's feeding base uh, for non-protein is largely wheat, maize, uh, corn, and rice. Uh, and they're affected by higher temperatures. We're already seeing reductions in the rate of improvement there. They may even go on further. Uh, a lot of people at Stanford, like David Lobel, are working on this. Huge problem. Agriculture is utterly dependent upon climate. Uh, we do irrigate a lot, and that's very important, but the water for irrigation has to come somewhere. You may, in California, for example, the snowpack is getting in more and more trouble in the Sierra. That's the water storage for our summer agriculture. If, you, if it comes down as rain in the winter, it doesn't do any good for the farmers at all. Uh, so we're seeing impacts around the world on agriculture already from the amount of climate change we've seen from a relatively small influx of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, and it's going to get worse and worse because we're not taking the steps to do it. We're going, we're reversing it. We have, again, a government that's trying to destroy the environment because it has no clue that the environment is what supports them. But isn't it possible also that the grain belt, the corn belt, could reach up into Canada, that Russian uh, could have uh, arable land, that is comes, new land comes into agricultural production because of the warming climate? It could be a in, in some areas, uh, you may get more production because of the climate change. If the corn belt moves into Canada, the corn plants are going to have a lot of trouble growing on the Canadian shield. you got to develop the soils first before a... a belt of uh, good agricultural land will actually shift. Developing the soils only take 10 or 20,000 years. And so after that, maybe we'll be able to grow a lot of corn in Hudson Bay uh, or on the Canadian Shield. But basically, I wouldn't wait around for it. And uh, of course, as it gets warmer in places like the United States, we're moving more and more to tropical agriculture. Tropical agriculture is traditionally less productive than temperate zone agriculture. Among other things, the pests go all year round in the tropics, whereas in the temperate zones, we have the benefit of a pest-controlled period called the winter, which allows us to get a lot of stuff grown better than we can in the tropics. The prospects for doing better with food uh, in terms of production are, and I would say, very shaky. And in terms of distribution, uh, I see things going in the wrong direction. We're caring less and less. We're putting less into redistribution of food, even though we've improved the systems for doing it. But there's less interest, uh, particularly in our government, in helping other people. And there's about estimates of about 50 percent of uh, food in this country ends up as waste, both from the farm to the store to the plate. Yeah, we, we, we get it's interesting. People say, oh, well, we can do it. We can distribute food better. We can stop wasting food. Well, I hate to tell you, you're a young man. But in the 1950s and 60s, we were saying, you know, we could feed a lot more people if we didn't waste so much food. We're wasting more now than we did then. In other words, when you look at the trends and how we're behaving, uh, we're wrapping more. After all, in 1960, we didn't have Texas-sized chunks of uh, plastic debris floating around in the oceans. With now, within the next few years, we'll have more plastic in the oceans than we have weight of fish, weight of plastic. The pl plastic gets ground into tiny little fragments. On their surface, they're collected persistent organic pollutants, POPs. And they are now small enough, those fragments, to go through the blood-brain barrier. Our seafood is loaded with them. We are, one of the things that's not recognized at all is the toxification of our entire planet. You know, if you do individual studies, you find if you look at the IQs of kids raised upwind of the lead smelter versus downwind, the upwind kids have two or three more IQ points than the downwind kids. If you look at the same uh, the ones raised upwind of the farm fields that are being treated with pesticides versus downwind, so the smarter kids are always upwind. So a lot of scientists think we're actually dumbing down humanity. Now, I didn't think there was any empirical evidence of this until I watched the, uh, the 2016 Republican debates. Then you could see we are dumbing down humanity. 
You're listening to a Climate One conversation with Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University. Coming up, did China's one-child policy go too far? The Chinese policy was not as coercive as it was painted over here. That's up next when Climate One continues. continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about solutions for an overcrowded planet with Paul Ehrlich. He co-authored the 1968 bestseller The Population Bomb with his wife, Anne Ehrlich. In the book, the Ehrlichs advocated for a green revolution as a way to avoid worldwide famine. The main critique of the population bomb is you underestimated the productivity gains, the green revolution. Uh, isn't that fair to say that you underestimated the world's capacity to, to generate a lot more food with new technology? It's fair and unfair because, first of all, uh, the estimates we took and cited were from agricultural economists. Uh, and I think the general mistake, which I certainly shared because I didn't know anything about it, I was talking the people that we cited that that knew I'm no agricultural economist. I'm more of one now than I used to be. Uh, But the the technology was clear. What we were worried about more than anything else was how rapidly it could spread. And what was underestimated was the brilliance of many subsistence farmers who knew a lot more about what they could do on their land uh, than a lot of the people who had industrial agriculture. But it's certainly, there are a bunch of mistakes in the population bomb. Any scientist who is asked about his work 50 years before, particularly when it's a broad thing, uh, who still, still thinks exactly the same thing he thought 50 years before, is a pretty weak scientist. A lot of people who are critical of the Green Revolution, the industrial-scale uh, agriculture, cite organic food as, as a hopeful prospect. Uh, yet, can organic food scale and feed the world? Because there's some concern that it would actually, it can't happen with organics. I, there, it's complicated. There's some wonderful work by Claire Kremen and others at um, Berkeley uh, that certainly suggests that um, you can scale up organic agriculture, but you might not be able to scale up the profits that go with it. Remember, for the last couple hundred years, we have adopted something brand new in the society of Homo sapiens, and I mean all the way back through the hunter-gatherers and so on, and that is money has become the standard of everything. And so what we manage to do depends on who's getting rich at it. Uh, And that's a, you know, perpetual growth of the GDP uh, is still in the minds of many ignorant politicians and economists a really important thing that's possible, and it isn't. So, yes, I think organic farming has huge potential, but there's also huge dangers. There are huge dangers in what we're doing with our soils, uh, which we're, is a resource we're getting rid of at too rapid a rate. Uh, you know, the whole situation leads me and I think all of my close colleagues to believe that we're headed for some form of a collapse in the next few decades. We can't keep going the direction we're going uh, and uh, not have shall we say, the lifestyles of the people listening to this program dramatically altered in a way they don't want to have them altered. Stephen Pinker at Harvard uh, has a new book called Enlightenment Now, and he's written a previous book saying that life is safer, longer, healthier, more prosperous, people are better educated, societies and cultures are more tolerant, more fulfilling, that there's more progress in humanity than you give it credit for. (laughs) Uh, It's true that a relatively small group of people in Western societies with science um, and a certain form of progress, but with science, with the idea of democracy, which uh, was usually democracy for white men, but let's skip that and so on, uh, did make a lot of, quote, progress, end quote, in various areas. What's not usually mentioned by the Pinkers is, for instance, one of the main things that allowed that was slavery, to start out with. If you know your history, the role of slavery in the development of the West, absolutely gigantic. So slavery's in there. Then we adopted other people's energy slaves. In other words, it was made possible by using up the sun's energy stored in fossil fuels at a horrendously rapid rate and taking it from other people in the world. You know, the old line, 
about the Middle East. How did our oil get under their sand? Uh, and they're suffering to this day over our wars to get oil, which is the main thing that the West has fought over for many years. Uh, that science is still not clear whether it was a smart move. It came from agriculture. We moved into agriculture that allowed specialization. Specialization allowed industrialization. Industrialization allowed a moron, an absolute moron, narcissist, to have the power to blow up civilization and destroy humanity and most of the animals on the planet. One single person. Is that an advantage? Uh, you know, I have my, there are questions. I live a very good life, but I've spent a lot of time with people who don't have that opportunity. But there are hundreds of millions of people in India and China who've moved out of poverty into the middle class. Now, you could say that China and India are paying a big environmental price for that material wealth. I lived in China in the late 80s. I go back now and the people are better fed, better clothed, better off. So can't you give some recognize that hundreds of millions of people have moved out of poverty better life, better health. You can recognize that. It's certainly true. Uh, there's still 600 million people in India who have to defecate outside because they don't have toilets. Uh, and the issue is the violence that we have committed against those people and all future generations by working so hard to destroy our life support systems and to use up the energy slaves, uh, often for ridiculous reasons, uh, that we took from them and that we inherited. Uh, it's a complex thing, but just saying everything is better is fine if you're a not-too-bright uh, faculty member at Harvard. But if you're an Indian villager uh, or a uh, ch member of a Chinese minority or are living up in the mountains and so on, uh, the world doesn't look quite so bright. Humans are a very adaptive species. That's, that's why we're here. What are the prospects that we can adapt to a warmer world with more turbulent agriculture? We've adapted to some pretty... Uh, big challenges in the past, can't we basically ride this out? Well, I'd like to hope we'll be able to. And in fact, uh, our research uh, is aimed primarily now at figuring how to avoid the same mistakes after the collapse. In other words, we're hoping the collapse won't be caused by a large-scale nuclear war, which will basically, for instance, people say, oh, don't worry, we, we won't need currency, we'll use Bitcoin. Use Bitcoin without electricity? Yeah, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're, we're approaching energy limits, which we may get around with quantum computing and so on and so forth, uh, but we're not going to get around the basic distribution and political problems. I, my view is, has been for a long time that I'm very pessimistic about the future, but very optimistic about what we could do. I have to say that over the last decade or so, I've become less optimistic about what we could do. Uh, for among other things, of course, because we're not trying any of it. In other words, right now we have deteriorating infrastructure in the United States. Our water handling infrastructure is going downhill fast. Water is absolutely essential. We should be not only rebuilding the infrastructure, but designing it for flexibility because we don't know where the water is going to be needed as the climate change. We're not doing a thing. Right. The system we've built is not uh, adequate for today. But just a few years ago, a lot of people were running around peak oil, peak oil, peak oil, that there would be peak supply. And then fracking comes along, a technological innovation supported in part by the U.S. government. And forecast this year, 2018, U.S. oil production could surpass Saudi Arabia. That was not foreseen five or 10 years ago. And now the peak oil people are pretty much quiet or they're talking about peak demand. But peak supply, this resource we were going to run out of is suddenly abundant. This is absolutely typical thinking, not yours. I mean, sure. What about 10 years from now? In other words, the people look at time scales that evolutionary biologists and ecologists look at very, very differently. And we're also, fracking is moving us towards peak environmental destruction. What they're doing in Canada with the oil sands and so on, destroying a huge portion of the country for the temporary use of oil. For one species in one generation. Exactly. And the, of course, I don't even want to get into the rights of the biodiversity that we're destroying people. I recently saw an article saying there's no ethical reason not to destroy biodiversity. Well, ethics are entirely invented 
by human beings. And there's a huge portion of our population that thinks it's unethical to wipe out the songbirds and so on and so forth, besides the fact that it's killing us at the same time. So it's a complex issue, but there are always going to be people who say, oh, well, we're going to come up with some magic. Uh, we'll pull the technological rabbit out of the hat to save us. And they forget when you look at the last past technological rabbits, they've often had very nasty droppings. Uh, there's one to talk uh, about uh, human cognition and climate. Because uh, you're an evolutionary biologist, you've, you've written about how humans are, are sight-based animals. Our brains are not wired to recognize and respond to this visible threat of climate change. If there's a man with a gun or a tiger in the woods, we know what to do. But this abstract gas, how are we challenged to respond to climate change? We're challenged because we don't. We have to train to do it. You know, scientists always find that people can't read graphs, uh, that people peering into microscopes are carefully drawing their own eyes, which are reflected back. Uh, people have to be trained to perceive certain things because we evolved as you indicated uh, to dodge the car. That's easy. When the lion jumps at you, you duck. Uh, but with climate change, if the climate was changing on Australopithecus, our ancestor, uh, all they could do was mutate or migrate. There wasn't a thing they could really do in response, and they weren't causing it. Now we're causing it, and we can't perceive it. 68 was the population bomb came out then. A couple of years later was Earth Day. Uh, you know, has Earth Day had much of an impact, this annual gathering? Is it kind of a, a I think sometimes it's narrowing, like we, every day should be Earth Day, but it still does, has a lot of resonance. It had resonance originally, but of course you got to remember the political situation at the time. We were bogged down uh, in uh, Vietnam, and there was there was a general movement. There was the uh, sexual revolution, so it was a revolutionary time. And Earth Day got a lot of people concerned. One of the things that has pleased me, though, as our government has gone down the drain, more and more people are becoming active. And I think if you're counting on the politicians saving you, take a closer look at them. Just watch the evening news. So political activism on the part of people is really necessary. And I think uh, groups, at least I see, a cheery upsurge in that kind of activity. It may not be enough, but it's, in my view, the route we've got to take. You talk about foregoing population. Are we headed toward, what, 9 or 10 billion people? Seems more like likely 11. 11. It, it, more likely if we avoid the huge die-off. There's almost no way, even with billions of people dying uh, prematurely, that you're going to have fewer than 7 billion people on the planet uh, at the turn of the next century, unless we have a large-scale nuclear war or absolutely vast plagues or famines. Uh, and, and I mean losing... 15 billion people or something over the period, but not likely to have a very small thing. We, what we need to do, obviously, and should have started 40 years ago, is give women absolutely equal rights and opportunities, make sure everybody has access to modern contraception and backup abortion, uh, teach everybody that you can have lots of fun with sex without having lots of children and uh, change our entire society. And do you have some regrets for uh, unintended, perhaps, or how the population bomb was used to justify things, some some, oh, some sure. op oppressive one-child policy in China, sterilization? Tell, tell me anything social that you try and get done in a country like just the United States that will not be taken over by racists and used or by uh, crazy um, economically, give me more money people for their own purposes. On the other hand, what we did say uh, and have always said is that the last thing you want to try is coercion uh, and uh, never supported coercive policies. The Chinese policy was not as coercive as it was painted over here. There was an incident, actually, that involved somebody at Stanford saying that the uh, Chinese were abusing the one-child family thing and giving stories of uh, forced abortions and things like that. Well, it turned out the reason we knew about those were the Chinese themselves labeled them abuses and struggled to correct them. Uh, and one of my colleagues at Stanford was very close to the person who invented the one-child family thing, perfectly acceptable to most Chinese. Anne and I met with a group of 
of Chinese women to find out about that. And a secret meeting, it was about 20 years ago, and there were maybe 35 women. And in the first two minutes, they said, we had to do that. It's a smart policy. They're doing it right. And then one of the women said, but I'm the best neurosurgeon in China, and I'll never be head of my service. She said, because I'm a woman. And the rest of the meeting was discussion of the glass ceiling for Chinese women, which shows you a government can do one thing very intelligently and yet miss another really critical part of the issue. If you're just joining us, my guest at Climate One is Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Professor Ehrlich, tell us what is the sixth great extinction and why should a person care if some funny looking insect in Costa Rica goes away? Uh, well, the sixth great extinction there, the history of life has not been uniform. There have been five times when over 75% of the kinds of animals and plants, the species, have disappeared. Uh, we know the cause of the last one 66 billion years ago, 66 million years ago, was almost certainly a collision with an asteroid on the Yucatan Peninsula, which wiped out the dinosaurs, except for the birds. Um, so why should anybody care? Well, we're in the middle, or at the very start, but maybe almost into the middle, of the sixth great extinction episode caused entirely by human activities. Why should you care about the disappearance of a little insect? Well, let me give you an example. Most of the focus has been on loss of species, which from the point of view of a human lifespan is going on very slowly. We lose a few each year. Let's suppose, but what we're losing in huge numbers is the populations of species. Let's suppose that you wiped out a little single bee species in North America called Apis mellifera, which is the honeybee. Now, if you wipe them out entirely in North America, there would be no loss of biodiversity by the species count standard, but we'd lose somewhere between 15 and $20 billion worth of agricultural production, and our diet would become much less nutritious. The point is, all those other organisms are working parts of our life support system. And when you just have a few of them left, that doesn't count in the extinction, the number of species extinction counters, but it counts a great deal in our very lives. And what we're doing from the sea and from the land is wiping out population after population, members of our life support systems. What we're busily doing is sawing off the limb that we're sitting on. I once heard it described as rivets in an airplane. You can lose one rivet, two rivets, five rivets, but at some point that rivet in the airplane... The wing comes off. Spoil your whole day. Right. Uh, E.O. Wilson has this idea of, of setting aside half of the world's land uh, as nature preserve. Is that realistic? And what would that accomplish? Well, what Ed is saying is basically correct. Namely, if we could set aside half of the world, then our life support systems would be secure or at least relatively secure. Uh, I don't have to tell you the practical difficulties of doing it. It's like the practical difficulties of giving women rights, equal rights around the world. There are lots of things we know desperately need to be done. The thing that makes me such a pessimist is I see the politicians going mostly in the opposite direction, doing things to make things worse rather than better. You're listening to a conversation about our exploding population with Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich. Coming up, can humans overcome their innate instinct to fill up the planet? What do we know is absolutely programmed into us genetically from the theory of evolution, namely out-reproduce your buddies, maximize your reproduction. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking with Paul Ehrlich about his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. Let's continue with their conversation. 
You talk about the problem of inexorable growth. You know, our retirement plans are tied to mutual funds, the, the stock market. When uh, the stock market goes down, contributions to the Commonwealth Club and KQED and Stanford go down. We're all locked into this system of growth. Uh, but is there really you know, a steady state economy, something that, that has less growth or no growth? Is that I've, I've been working hard with economists pushing more work on that. It was pioneered by Herman Daly, um, who uh, basically has written books on a no-growth economy. The trouble is, first of all, uh, few politicians and many economists can't read, uh, and they certainly can't think. And all you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that when you have a finite planet, you can't grow on it forever. You also, if you look at the history of economics and the history of humanity, this whole, everything you mentioned is where is the money going? That's the ultimate value, uh, you know, and we've got to find a new system, and that's what we should be working on. In other words, I don't have the answers to these things, but every economist should have as their first job seeing to it that people understand you cannot have perpetual growth on a finite planet. For some people, they look to what's called biomimicry. They look to nature for solutions, and there is no waste in nature, so that waste is always someone else's food or input. So this idea of circular economies where things are consumed and then rebuilt, reused, made into something. Unfortunately, the second law of thermodynamics tells you there's limits to that. And it's one of the few laws in nature that nobody sane thinks we're going to get rid of. But, that's, but that is a direction we should be moving. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of perpetual. We should be thinking, among other things, of not stealing from our children and grandchildren, saving as much of the resources that are necessary for human life, including the living resources, and hoping that they will be able to find ways to continue, if not for a million years, maybe for another thousand years. That would be sustainable enough for me, and let the Martians take over after that. Uh, climate is is often framed as a moral issue. Uh, what did you think of Laudato Si, or our common home from Pope Francis? Um, I wrote an article with John Hart at Berkeley, whose title was changed by uh, Nature, which published it. Uh, they changed the title to something like, The Pope Doesn't Do Enough for Ch Women. But our title was Two Cheers for Pope Francis. I think he is a more flexible uh, individual than uh, than vast majority of people who've been in that position. He's well-educated. You, know, you have to understand that the Roman Catholic Church has a social science and a uh, natural science academy. They're interested in hearing uh, what's going on in the world, and I think they're changing gradually in the right direction, but they have the same problems we have in the United States. Politics, stuffy idiots who don't understand the world. Uh, I, uh, I'm personally a fan of the Pope, and that will get him in trouble. One of your former students, Stuart Brand, I saw a video of him looking looking back at your work and saying that, um, you know, there are some countries where there are too few people. That was Canada wants to import people because the the graying of the population. Uh, so how about the idea still that Japan, Canada, certain countries, their population gets to a certain age. They need younger people to work and support that graying population. So there is a, no, such a thing don't. as... Uh, first of all, uh, when you look at the dependency ratio, which is what's usually considered, they worry about there being too many older people for the society to support. Uh, but, of course, there's fewer. You, it's easier to make somebody over 70 productive economically than it is to make somebody under 7 be productive economically. And the number of people under 15, the proportion shrinks dramatically uh, as the number of older people over 60, which is what the usual statistic is, grows. But of course, you got to stop population growth. You cannot continue to grow, be it by importing people, be it by increasing birth rates. No way. Cannot continue. It's math. No trick around it. You know, climate is thought of as this collective action problem that no one person, no one country, uh, no one governor can solve it together. It's the ultimate collective action problem. We have to do it together. And yet we seem to be with with Brexit and our politics devolving into more of a fractional, fragmented tribal. And you said something really interesting. I love watching you on, on the Johnny Carson show about how we evolved in small groups. You were talking about race. And it seems like we're going back to that tribal 
tribal history of where uh, at a time when we need to come together to solve this massive climate collective if, problem. If you look at people in our society, giant society, and then you look at their Christmas lists or their closest colleagues, the numbers usually are in the vicinity of uh, 100 or 150 people. It's called the Dunbar number. And it's what the estimate is for the size of our hunter-gatherer groups way back when. Uh, Hunter-gatherers had several advantages over us. They were much more equitable. Their leadership was not one leader. There would be a leader for hunting. There'd be a leader for medicine. There would be a leader for settling disputes and so on. Since they had to carry everything with them, you couldn't have Koch brothers collecting you know, five million times as much as somebody as somebody else. Uh, they all spoke the same language. They were all genetically related. So if your wife was cheating on you, she was probably uh, cheating on you with somebody who had very much your genes. So there wasn't the same problem there. So in many ways, hunting gathering was a very good stage of our existence. We didn't have TV uh, and uh, we didn't have many of the diseases we have today either. But of course, we died young. So take your choice. You wrote in The Dominant Animal about cultural evolution as well as genetic evolution. So can we evolve past these primal tribal instincts? Well, we have. I mean, for instance, what do we know is absolutely programmed into us genetically from the theory of evolution, namely out-reproduce your buddies, maximize your reproduction. Now, I've done surveys now in dozens of audiences of thousands of people. I've yet to run into a woman who either has or claims she wants 25 children, which is quite possible biologically, but we've overridden the great genetic code things by with contraception and social choice and so on. So there's no question we can change. We have the ability to change. You also write about uh, a lot of motivations being uh, driven by hierarchy within social groups, whether it's money or fertility or that sort of thing. So how is that really driving our human behavior? It's, it's, it's our peer groups, which mean that's maybe amplified by social media now. Well, yeah, we, there's no question that our satisfaction uh, if you do surveys and the way our culture has evolved uh, depends on how you do in relation to people you know well. That is, if I was living in a, a, uh, a obscure Indian village, I'd be an extraordinarily rich person. If I were living in uh, Palo Alto, California, I'm almost poor, can't hardly afford to live there. So it depends on uh, relative situations. And that's, uh, among other things, builds hierarchies. All these things are changeable if we get together and try and change them. And there are people moving in that direction. For instance, there are degrowth movements in Europe. You know, there are people who are actually working hard uh, to change the economic system. Uh, so the, the potential is there. What we don't have enough of, I'm afraid, is time. And there's also the Human Development Index, things, these idea to try to come up with alternative right. measures to GDP or, or income, gross national happiness, that sort of thing. Uh, those things get a lot of attention, but do they really get any traction? They're tracks? not taken over. They're not, no. they're not taken off, are they? Well, all we can do is keep working. Artificial intelligence, uh, very exciting right now. Silicon Valley is all over this. As an evolutionary biologist, how do you view the creation, the development of artificial intelligence? Uh, well, originally it was big at Stanford, and we always said artificial intelligence and natural stupidity. And that really summarizes the situation with artificial intelligence. And that is, of course, the people who are going to be dealing with it are going to be naturally stupid. Uh, and I worry about what they're going to do. But as a general problem— Especially if they're downwind from, uh, from those coal yeah, well, plants we, you're talking about. It's a about. general problem with technology. Technological change can be excellent or it can be bad, and you've got to watch it closely, and you've got to be what we call adaptive managers. That is, if it ain't working, you have a way and a back out so you can get rid of it. Uh, for example, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had developed a way to simply destroy and remove from Earth all nuclear weapons and fix it so they can't be rebuilt? You know, uh, technologies are not all good. Uh, or they may be temporarily good. There was a time when a car was a wonderful thing. 
Now, if you try and drive in the Bay Area, I don't think the impression you'll get is that a car is a wonderful thing. Right. And there's a number of people here at Stanford who spent their careers building up nuclear weapons who then later said we should uh, get rid of all of them, right? The cold warriors who then uh, changed their tune. Looking back since the 50 years of the population bomb, what positive things have happened that surprised you? Well, I was, uh, I would say, very pleasantly surprised by the success of the uh, racial integration movement, uh, by the fact that I've now, uh, I was trained as a pilot by a woman pilot, and I've flown in many airliners that are piloted by women. That was an unthinkable thing in the 1930s. Uh, my first girlfriend in the late 30s had for opportunities. She could be a teacher in the lower grade. She could be a nurse or she could be a secretary. That was damn near it. Now, we haven't gotten where we need to be in gender equity, but we've surely moved along. Maybe the most surprising thing is the speed with which people understood that it's nobody else's damn business uh, how you enjoy sex as long as you're not hurting somebody. And that took place with a almost blinding speed. And of course, uh, some of the real dopes don't get it yet, but they will. You have this reputation as, as doctor, uh, you know, a prophet of doom. Uh, do people kind of avoid you at cocktail parties or picnics and think, oh, it's going to be uh, you're a downer? Oh, I don't talk about these things at cocktail parties. I just drink. <laughs> Fair enough. And looking forward, knowing what you know about population and climate, how do you keep hopeful when it looks the odds are so long, the hour is late, the time is stark? If you drink a lot of good wine, you'll keep your internal environment in good shape while your external goes down the drain. All of us who share the same concerns also share a like being in a band of brothers and being social animals. And uh, the most pleasant thing in my life is my social contacts. And most of them, uh, all of them, agree with basically what I've said here today. We don't talk about it. We just drink. I've heard you like wine and chocolate. Um, uh, you spent every summer since the 1959, I think, in, in the Rockies. Uh, and I think you may have spent your last one there perhaps recently. Uh, and one of your uh, academic person who described herself as your academic daughter said it might be upsetting to have one's life coming to a close here now in history. You've talked about some of the, the threats. Um, how do you feel about kind of coming to a close, your career coming to a close in this, this particular time? Well, it's an time? interesting philosophical thing put forth by a philosopher named Scheffler who asked the question, if you knew when you died, the world would end, that would be the end of the universe, would that change your behavior? And my view is it would, that uh, you get a certain amount of pleasure while you're alive uh, thinking about what might happen in a good way to people you love, to people uh, very often you become very loving of the children and grandchildren of your friends. And I think that's enormously important, even though I agree completely with Vladimir Nabokov, who said, if I recall it correctly, life is a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. And so uh, you just keep going. Greg Dalton has been talking with Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University, marking the 50th anniversary of the seminal book, The Population Bomb, which he co-authored with his wife, Anne Ehrlich. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.